Well, good morning, Saints. Hopefully everyone is doing well. And if you are our first-time guest, thank you so much for uh, for being with us today, joining our family for worship. If you have your Bible, please open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We, we, will, we will be in verses 5 through 11 again. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. All believers are to extend to other people the same forgiveness they freely embrace from God the Father. Extending this forgiveness is part of extending his love to other image bearers. Remember from last week's sermon, extending forgiveness to people who sin against you doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. People can't be rushed. It's like a marathon. It's a process that involves both the offender and the one who's been offended. Can you recall the first aspect of this process? Kids, do you remember the first aspect of this process of extending forgiveness that I talked about last week? Do you remember? That's part of it. I'm looking for a term. Two words. Yes. Church discipline. Church discipline is is the first aspect of extending forgiveness. And if you wasn't here last week, the sermon is on the website. So please go listen to it because these sermons, the next couple of sermons are all connected. So so you got to listen to them all in order to get the whole picture of what these messages are going to be about. So it's uh, church discipline is part of the process. And the church discipline at the village church has a, you know, a triple A rating. It's a triple A rating. And that triple A rating stands for acknowledgement, accountability, and action. Triple A. There's acknowledgement of the issue, the sin and the offense that's clear to the offender. There's accountability for the offender, and then there's action steps for the offender that's appropriate. Triple A. And church discipline, is it fun? It's not fun. But when it's done right, it's good. But what's next? What comes next? Well, what comes after triple A? Where is the discipline process leading the person who's under it? And also, where is it leading the person who's who's been offended and sinned against? Well, we're going somewhere. And Paul answers that question for us. And that answer is restoration. Restoration. Extending restoration is the second aspect of the forgiveness process. If you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 5. And here is God's word to his beloved sons and daughters. This is not my word. This is not the opinion of the village church. This is God's word. And so if you get mad, take it up with him. Verse five. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For by this I wrote to you that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. 
Everyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we will not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is God's holy, perfect, inerrant word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, we cry out to you as the one who leads us into all truth, our counselor, the guarantee, Lord, our deposit that guarantees our inheritance in Christ. That is you. That does not come from us. And so as I often pray, any understanding that is gained from Scripture comes because of you, not because of the books we read, not because of the degrees we have, not because we think we're so smart, not because we think we have the right theology or we listen to the right pastors. It comes from you. And so if we don't understand something in the Bible, it's because you ain't moving. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will move. In all of our hearts and in all of our minds. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This week I read three stories of restoration after church discipline. Three pastors were asked to share a story from someone who's in the congregation who has been restored to the fellowship after discipline for unrepentant sin. One of these stories came from a pastor in Dubai. You see, in November 2011, one of his church members were, was placed under discipline. The brother was removed from church membership and instructed not to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, I know that sounds harsh. It may, be even, it may even feel a little unloving. You see, the front end of discipline often does. This brother was shacking up with his girlfriend. And that means living as husband and wife, but not really husband and wife. He was indulging in sexual immorality. Several friends from the church went to him to acknowledge the issue and to hold him accountable. The pastor said his closest friends in the church went to him, warning him that he was defaming the name of Christ by living in this arrangement and misrepresenting what it means to be a Christian. But this brother didn't listen to their councils. Eventually, the church elders got involved and they met with him to hear his side of the situation and, again, to acknowledge the issue and to lovingly hold him accountable. But, again, he didn't listen. And this is what he told his elders. I know it's sinful and it brings dishonor on Christ's name, but I'm simply not moving out. I'll, I'll read it again. I know it's simple, and I know it brings dishonor to Christ's name, but I'm simply not moving out. And as a, as a result, the elders placed him under church discipline. And for several months, he stopped attending church. He was MIA. But over time and after a season, the spirit began working in his heart, and he came back, and the elders started seeing him at church again, and a few of them met with him. And the pastor says it became evident that he was now repentant of what he had done. And in time, he approached the elders and asked to be readmitted into membership. He expressed sorrow towards the whole congregation for what he had did and remorse for how his actions reflected poorly on Christ in our congregation. 
And as months and as years pass, not only has he shown repentance to be genuine, but on several occasions held himself out as an example of the positive effects of church discipline. Wonderful story, right? Of the positive effects of church discipline. But at the same time, we also have to be honest, church discipline sometimes has negative and painful effects as well. Because some churches don't do a good job administering it. They abuse it or they don't use it at all. Even believers don't always do a good and loving job of of responding to other believers and brothers and sisters in Christ who sin against them. Some of you have nightmare stories about church discipline. Church discipline gone bad. And some of you may also know someone who is dealing with church hurt. And as my mama say, there ain't nothing like church hurt. There's a different type of hurt. And so you may be dealing with that. You may even know a brother or sister who who's recovering from such hurt, who may even be stuck in it right now. There's a temptation in the faces of all churches and believers when dealing with the hurt that comes from the sins of other believers. It's in your face. It's in the face of the church. It's in the face of your elders. And do you know what it is? This temptation whispers to you things like get even. Get revenge. Get payback. I mean, you go Old Testament style on them. Eye for an eye. Hurt them back. Disown this brother and sister. Cut them out of your life. And if we're honest, all of us have felt those emotions. So don't come in here being all holy. You felt it. Because it hurts. It's painful. And it grieves us. When people sin against us, particularly people we love. Family, friends, church family. It's a battle not to break fellowship. It's a battle to pray for them. It's a battle to, 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 to still engage with them. Definitely if they're in your own house. And sometimes it's hard to even be in the same space with them. A southern author once says, Yankees, that's people who live in the north, they don't understand that the southern way of talking is a language of nuance. What we can do in the south is that we can take a word, change it just a little bit, and make it mean something altogether altogether different. For example, he says, there is naked, N-A-K-E-D, and then there's naked. N-E-K-K-I-D. And they mean totally different, two different things. So in the South, there's a language of nuance. And and, and to be honest, in life, there are nuances. There are nuances. There's even nuances when it comes to sins committed against other people. Some sins are more heinous than others. Stealing money out out of our offering plate is not as heinous as physical and as sexual abuse in our church. Now, this is not, 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 not as heinous. The consequences for the two will be different. Some sins committed to other people, against other people, will have legal consequences. And I can't save you. The police will be involved, 
Lawyers would be involved. The court system would be involved. And they may be jail time. Beloved, please hear and take my next two, three statements to heart. If you take notes, here's the time to take notes. First, church discipline does not function like the court of law in our country. That's point number one. Point number two, church discipline is not a substitute for civil and criminal manners. We're not a substitute for that. Some things I may have to call the cops on you. Third, church discipline serves a God-ordained role in the life of the local church. A God-ordained role. And one pastor says, in Scripture, the goal of discipline is not punitive. As though the church is punishing someone for sin. On the contrary, the goal is restorative. To win back the brother and sister. So the goal is not wrath. It's not judgment. It is not us lining someone up and getting our holy self-righteous stones and throwing curveballs at them. Hey, I got you. It's not it's not shame. It's not condemnation. It's not guilt. It's not the death penalty. It's not getting even. Church discipline has three positive effects. Repentance, restitution, and restoration. Those three in that order. Because, again, if you steal from a brother and sister, you got to make restitution for that. It ain't just simply, I'm sorry, forgive me. Give them their money. <laughs> Give them their money. These positive effects should be seen at the village church. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants to see in the church in Corinth as they shepherd their brother who is under their discipline. And he's under discipline for some sin. Paul doesn't address the sin. Doesn't even tell us what the sin is. But he is clear. Something shady went down and the church got mad about it and he's under discipline. And please know these brothers and sisters in this body, they are hurt. See, we have a tendency to come to scripture and treat it like it's just a Disney movie or something. And these are real people. So whatever happened in this church caused some pain. And I'm sure some people was angry. Some of them gave this brother the side eye. And some of them want to get even. Because the temptation is in their face. Because just be, just be real. Some things may happen in this church and you want to get even. You're going to come knocking on my door or sending me an email. Pastor Alex, this was what happened. I want to get even. Then I got to talk you off the cliff. It just be honest. Let's just be real. Things happen even within the body of Christ. So this is why Paul warns them not to overwhelm the brother with excessive sorrow. Look at verses six and seven. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and to comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Don't overdo the discipline. Corinthians, don't abuse it. Don't pile on. Don't go beyond what's necessary. Don't bury the brother or sister and leave them from dead. Don't throw them in the deep end of the pool and just walk away. Maybe you need to get in there with them. Don't kill off the offender. Administer discipline with empathy. Administer it with empathy. The message Bible says, if all you do is pour on the guilt, you could very well drown him in it. Remember the goal. 
Remember the positive effects. Repentance, restitution, restoration. The brother in this local church, he repented. He made restitution. And it's time for the church to restore him back to the fellowship. Restore him back. Paul says the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. I love this translation. It doesn't just simply say forgive him. The church is to turn to him first. That turn is personal. It's relational. It's communal. Turn towards your brother. See him as a brother in Christ, even though his sin has hurt, pained, and grieved you. He repented. He made restitution. So now turn to him, receive him, welcome him, accept him, embrace him, go to him, enjoy his restored presence. It doesn't mean you're going to be best friends, but it means something. There should be mutual respect, mutual honor, and mutual empathy. Saints, can you see the picture the apostle is painting? And will you accept the image? Can you turn to your brother and sister in Christ who has repented and who has made restitution, who has asked your forgiveness? Can you look at them without disgust in your eyes, without distrust in your nonverbal communications, without the eye roll, without the stare of judgment? And we all got stare of judgment. Sometimes it's that mama stare. And are you in a healthy and safe place? where you can even make the first turn. Because we can't overlook that. Spiritual health, emotional health, mental health. Because keep in mind, the forgiveness process involves both the offender and the one who's been offended. The one who's sinned and the one who's hurt by the sin. Both are on a journey through the forgiveness process, through the discipline process, and the restoration process. Turning to the person who has sinned against you and the whole body is part of that process. And it takes time. Wounded people need time to grieve, to lament, and to recover. They can't be rushed into making this turn if they ain't in a place to make it. So you do them no favors if you go to them like Job counselors. Don't be Job counselors to wounded and hurting believers. That's so unloving. Give the spirit time to work. And his work includes using your elders in this church to lovingly shepherd the the offended person and to also shepherd the person who did the offending. That we have to shepherd both in a way that is loving and that honors Christ. That's our responsibility as elders. What should the restoration process look like at the village church? What should it look like corporately, individually as well? Just like what Paul says. First, he tells them to turn to forgive their brother. Extend to him the same forgiveness that you embrace from God. How many Greek terms, how many Greek terms do you think there are used for forgiveness in the Bible? How many? How many terms in the New Testament, I mean? How many terms are used for forgiveness? Kids, what do you think? Because you don't get that in the English text. All we have is forgiveness. But how many Greek terms are used for forgiveness in the New Testament? 
You don't have to be shy. I mean, you're not going not gonna to lose your salvation if you answer. There's four. There's four Greek terms that is used in the New Testament for forgiveness. And the first term is aphesis. Aphesis. And it means to release from bondage, pardon and remission, freedom and liberation. This is God's forgiveness that's granted at the moment of salvation through saving faith in Christ alone. That's that salvation. That's, that's the forgiveness that gets you into the kingdom. And I came across a good blog post this week during my sermon prep. It's called The Beauty of Forgiveness and Their Applications. And the author gives detailed descriptions of all four types of forgiveness in the New Testaments. Listen to what he says about Ephesians. He says, I think Ephesians is the most glorious of all forms of forgiveness because it's the door of Christ which delivers man from his sin and blesses him with the riches of God's grace to eternity. Ephesians. The next one is Ephemi. Ephemi. That means to let go of a debt, to sin away, to lose, to remit, to release from guilt. It's the, you know, the guilt of your sin is no longer counted against you. The third term is harizomai. Harizomai. And it means to show oneself to be gracious, to grant forgiveness, to give freely, to graciously restore one to another. And the author of the blog post, he highlights two applications of this type of forgiveness, one for God and one for man. He says, this term is God's forgiveness to maintain fellowship with man, and it's man's forgiveness in obedience to God to promote reconciliation with man. How there is, oh my. The fourth term is Apollo. It means to set free, to dismiss, to let go, to discharge, to pardon someone who's in jail, to release a debtor. This is the reconciliation. This is the forgiveness between people. Now, here's the question. I'm pretty sure you know where this is going. Which of the four terms does Paul use here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2? What do you think? First, second, third, or fourth? Congregation participation time. All right. Well, I'm gonna give me time. Don't be rushing me to my sermon. I know you're hungry. All right, if you think it's the first term, raise your hand. Okay? Second term, raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Third term, raise your hand. Fourth term, raise your hand. Thank you. Third. Hadarizomai. He wants the Corinthians to turn towards their brother and to show themselves to be gracious to him, to freely grant to him forgiveness, to graciously restore him back to the body. He's asking them to forgive their brother and to be reconciled to him. That's what he's asking. And restoration of the wandering brother in this church is about restoring the broken relationship, restoring their broken fellowship, restoring their broken unity. Reconciliation within the body is what Paul wants. And it's not going to happen overnight. Because, again, real time, Paul wrote this letter to them. That was just the first step. Okay? It wasn't like they read it and said, man, let's go do it. I was like, what is he talking about? 
restore him? Really? Paul is not, he even didn't visit the church, okay? So he doesn't even know what's going on, but he's telling them, go be restored to him. Can you imagine if it was you reading that letter and you're the offended person? You're like, Paul been locked up too long. <laughs> he don't really know what happened. He don't really know the pain that this guy has caused. But he, he says, the punishment by the majority is enough. So now you should turn to your brother and forgive him. What Paul is asking them to do isn't worldliness. It's not legalism. It's not placing the burden of the law on them. It's the gospel. You say, well, why is it gospel, Pastor? Because Jesus turned to them in their sin. And so they should also turn to their brother in his. And the same, and the same, has Jesus, did Jesus turn to you in your sin? Did he turn to you in your junk? Did he turn to you in your issues? Did he ever say, I don't want you, I don't need you? No, he did not. And the same is true for each of us. Christ turned to you in your sin. He not only turned to you to look at you, he walked towards you in your sin. He did so while you were God's enemy. You weren't even family yet. You weren't even close to being family. He did those things when you were God's enemy. When you told God, man, get out of my face. I don't have nothing to do with you. He turned to you in your sin. He walked towards you in your sin. And he died for you because of it. As your substitute. Wow, you were God's enemy. Because the, the example is always Christ. It's not the legal system. It's not the world. So when you're responding to those who sin against you, remember how God responds to you. Now, I'm not saying you got to fake it. It will take you time to get there. But you got to respond to him the way God responds to you. The way Jesus responds to you still. The way he still keeps you. The way he still sees you. Because eventually, at some point, someone's going to sin against you in this church. And how are you going to respond? This reconciliation, believers have reconciliation with God. And that, and, that, and that reconciliation that we freely enjoy should also be experienced in our relationships with other people, definitely other believers. Because all believers are also reconciled to one another in Christ, in his body. We reconcile to one another. Even if, even if we don't freely live that out, we're still family. We're still going to see each other in glory. You might not get along now, but you will one day. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once for all have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, saints, who have made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, listen, that he might create, in himself, in himself, one new man in the place of the two. And so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through his cross. The people you attend church with is your family. We are part of the same body of Christ. 
We are. And now, as Diane said, we are a hot mess. But we're still family. But we're still family. Take a moment to look around the sanctuary. Take a moment to look around. Look at your church family. You're reconciled to one another in this church because of who you are in Christ. Because of who you are in Jesus. Even when our sin threatens the peace and unity of our body, we're still family. Even when uh, relationships and trust is broken, we're still family. Even when some of you are going to be on the church discipline, or some of you will one day, we're still family. Even when you're struggling through the restoration process, we're still family. Even when reconciliation hasn't happened yet between people, we are still family. So it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be complicated. And it will be frustrating at times. That's why we're broken people coming together. To embrace and stand Jesus as well. That's why. This is one of the reasons why church is not like any other organization. If you're really going to do life in the body of Christ, you don't leave when it gets hard. That's what we do in our clubs and our sports teams. You can just leave. You can just quit. When it gets hard here, Don't quit. Stay. Do life. Let's work through it. Let's talk about it. Let's really be family. Because the way we do family here is a testimony to the world about Christ. It is. It is is us living out the gospel that we say we believe practically. Because otherwise, it's just in theory. Can we stay together when our sin impacts the peace and unity of our church? We are not going to be any different than any other church in this world. Just because we look sexy and we look good, we're cross-cultural, we're reformed and we're Presbyterian, well, we still got issues. <laughs> they don't change in those things. What I'm asking you to do, can you stay and do life when it's hard? The late, the late Eugene Peterson says, God's forgiveness Brains reconciliation. Whereas our lives naturally tend to unravel, God brings things together. His forgiveness brings us into relationship with him, with one another, and ultimately with all of his creation. With all of it. Look at the table. Turn your eyes to the table. This table, this table here right in front of the sanctuary is a constant reminder of God's forgiveness towards each of you who know him in faith. It's a reminder of what he has done for you through Jesus Christ. And guess what? That will never change. That'll never change. Your sin won't change it. When people sin against you, that won't change it. It's a reminder that he freely gives to you unconditionally, daily forgiveness for the ways in which you fall short. This table is a reminder to you what Paul says in Romans 8, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loves us. Not loved us, but currently loves us in the present. 
For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate y'all from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. So you can come to this table with confidence. You can engage this week with confidence that you're cared for. You're provided for. And so what is this table for? This table is for, for the spiritual nourishment of God's sons and daughters. That something supernatural here happens with these common elements. The Spirit uses them to nourish Christians, to nourish them for the journey, to nourish them through this life. And so if you have saving faith in Jesus and, and, and you're a member of a congregation that preached the gospel, then you are more than welcome to partake of these elements with us. Friends and family, if you don't profess faith in Christ, I'm glad you're here. And if you have questions about what it means to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can pull me to the side and I'll gladly share the gospel with you and tell you how you can come to faith in Christ. Adults, we ask the kids that are with you abstain from the elements until they have been invited to the table by the church that you are a member of.